So turn with me then if you would, and I'm going to begin to open this up just from the very beginning. The themes that I'm bringing out in this first three verses really are that of, I said, prologue, principles, and proofs. And we're going to just look at a few of those things, and by way of introduction, look at the prologue with me. Now, the introduction there in verse 1, he says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with. So just by way of simple reminder as we begin to take up this book, though it should be obvious to most of us, this is clearly the second book that we're receiving from this particular author. The first book from this author also being a letter written to most excellent Theophilus, and that is the gospel according to Luke. And so Luke's gospel and the book of Acts are written by Luke. Now, with regard to Luke, he is, he is a man that by the grace of God was converted from, it seems, a Gentile background under the ministry of the apostle Paul. When we come through the book of Acts, we're going to see that he primarily follows not only the development of the, of the early church beginning in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the other parts of the earth, but most especially, other than a little bit of Stephen and Philip, he follows the ministries of Peter and Paul. And as we begin to un unpack this, I just want us to understand now, Theophilus, if you wonder who is that individual, the wonderful answer by those who study deeply and diligently is this, we don't know. And we don't need to know. The, it, it, now, there is speculation, and I state it as speculation, that this is a man who was likely saved out of paganism. Again, a man of Gentile background who may have taken upon him this name, Theophilus, as some often did, would take a distinctive different name at baptism. It would not be uncommon, particularly if the individual's name was extensively rooted in a pagan god. They would want to separate themselves from that pagan god and from that name. And Theophilus means really, some would say, lover of God or friend of God or loved of God. It's a great name. Something that we would all long for. And in the rich reality of it, as it was written to this man who was a friend of God, who was loved of God, who was a child of God, hopefully that same term appeals to all of us. And certainly the sense of this book does apply to all. But some have sought to speculate that this book was written generally to all believers and simply Theophilus is a figurative way of saying that. Um, but that's, that's entirely speculation, and I think speculation that's unhealthy because we have no biblical uses of Theophilus through any of the letters as a common reference to Christians, uh, nor do we have that it used in tradition. So throw that out. It was likely a particular man, and it might have been a particular man that God had raised to a position of importance and prominence in the context of the church, but not having a Jewish background, not having that understanding to grasp a gospel written by a Gentile and then the, and then the unfolding story that goes on here. Now, I want to also state, show you this in, in, by way of the prologue. This being his second book written to Theophilus, he said, I beget, I dealt with in the first book, all that Jesus began to do. So the first book was dealt with all that Jesus began to do, which when it's stated that way, kind of leaves hanging a secondary notion. Now we get to see all that Jesus continued to do. The first book dealt with what he began to do, and this one will deal with what he continues to do. Now, when you look at the title of this book of Acts, um, it's, it's fun and confusing whenever you dig into the scholarship of it. It was titled in some of the earliest manuscripts as Acts, just simply Acts. In others, it was titled The Acts of Jesus Christ. Others, the Acts of the Apostles. Others, the Acts of the Holy Apostles. The reason why we have distinctive titles given to this book is because, as you can see by the introduction, it's a letter. 
it is written to Theophilus and likely not titled by Luke. But, but, not, but let me put all those pieces together. The Acts of Jesus Christ, the Acts of the Apostles. Indeed, we might say it is the Acts, and when they had the Holy Apostles, it would kind of tie into the fact that they would be the recipients of the Holy Spirit shortly uh, on the day of Pentecost in this book. So really, we might want to see this as the Acts of Jesus Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives and ministries of the apostles. But that would be way too long a title. But it's good for us to frame that understanding because we remember when the apostles endeavor in ministry, it is always in dependence upon God. We remember the testimony of Paul much later, I am what I am, by the grace of God. He speaks of the ministry that he has appointed by the grace of God. So there is a constant dependent. And further, we do remember the words of Jesus in uh, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. As he was dealing and interacting with Peter there, he says, he says, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. That declaration of Christ that he will be the builder of his church. Now, we are blessed as the apostles were to be instruments that he uses in the building of his church, but let us never forget he is the one who is the builder. He is the head of the church. He is the authority of the church. He is the cornerstone and foundation of the church. Really, Christ must remain preeminent in all of these things. And really, to authenticate the preeminence of Christ, there was going to be a very special role that is given to those apostles who Jesus specifically taught, instructed, and gave a responsibility and authority to take that message and be witnesses. Now, we are all called to be witnesses of the gospel. But they were uniquely, as we're going to see in a moment, they were uniquely eyewitnesses to the life of Christ, to the death of Christ, and to the resurrection of Christ. And so they would declare what they had seen with their eyes. And we will be those who by grace through faith walk by faith and not sight. Our faith in Christ and who he was, his death and resurrection, rests not on us having seen him with our eyes, but being granted the eyes of faith that in the word we would see the truth, indeed see the glory of God in the face of Christ. So it's such a, a, a remarkable and rich instruction there but again i want us to note it's what jesus began to do or began to teach it it, it gives not the totality of it i just want to remind us of, of a sentence um that we, that we find as as we're going through here the scriptures remind us that when jesus spoke uh in john chapter 21 it says this there were also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. That's a remarkable statement, isn't it? If everything he did. Now, so we've got to be careful in the use of languages. Here it says, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. When he said all, did he mean each and everything that Jesus began to do and teach? No. Be very careful in your study of the scriptures. There are times all means all. There are times when all means much and many. And there are times when all means all kinds and classes. 
So we must be cautious when we approach the scripture because no one wrote of all that Jesus did. No one wrote of all that Jesus taught. Indeed, because we didn't have all that Jesus had taught his apostles uh, written down in our gospels, we have the rest of the epistles so that those teachings that are to be delivered by the authority of Christ to the church are conveyed by his apostles so that we have within our scriptures all that is necessary for life and godliness so that we're thoroughly equipped for every good work by the word of God. Now I want us to move past the prologue and begin to really dig into some of the principles. It says that here, I have dealt with, O Theophilus, all that Jesus began to do and teach. The first principle that I want to bring out in in this section of the scripture is that it deals with what Jesus did and taught. It deals with what he practiced and what he proclaimed. It deals with his works as well as his wisdom. It deals with his doings as well as his doctrines. All of that is included in what's going on here. And and what's beautiful about that is you do realize how frequently through the Gospels, interacting with those men, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus warns and says, beware of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. And he warns even throughout about hypocrisy and that danger of it. And hypocrisy was something that was, it was a known word. And it's a word that rooted itself back in Greek. And some of you may know the origins of that word. It had its history in the theater. And oftentimes playing particular roles in in a given play, there might be one individual who's playing multiple roles in that play. And the way that they would switch from role to one role to another, they would put on this mask. And it might be uncomfortable to us, but many of the female parts in theater were played by men. And so they would put on that mask, and then maybe they would put on that voice. And I know you think I'm going to give you an attempt at a female voice, but all my past attempts at that have failed miserably. So you can just imagine it in your own mind. But put on and, and, and become, a, a, become a female and then become maybe an old man and become something else. But the, the point of that is what, the, what that mask was it, and, and what they were showing with that mask on, how they were behaving and how they were acting, it's not really the person who's behind the mask. The, the one that's now a woman is actually a man. The one that's now old is, is actually young. And so on. So it speaks of, they, they show something. They make a show. They make a pretense of, of something that they want everybody to see. But behind that, it's not the same thing. It's not a what you see is what you get situation. It, it is a pretense. They make a show of righteousness and a show of godliness. Uh, uh, Christ at times would allude to those things with strong statements. You know, they, they would clean the outside, but the inside would be filthy. He would even speak of whitewashed sepulchers. That would be like, like the tombs that you come up and, and it's just so clean and orderly and magnificent and regal looking. But inside, what's inside? Dead bones. It, it, you know, you may want, it may look attractive from the outside, but what's actually in there is repulsive. You want no part of that. That's not Jesus. Jesus was entirely, and this is, it, it, you've got to note this. When Jesus began his ministry and he called his apostles to follow him, they followed him. They didn't necessarily, okay, we're going to meet at 8 right here at the flagpole, and then we're going to care, you know, and at 5 you'll be dismissed. And that wasn't how it really was. How often were they with Jesus? All the time. They saw his life all the time. You know, how easy it would be and how, for, for someone to... Um, be one thing and put on one show and something different 
in a different place. But Jesus was that perfect God-man who was the supreme example at all times. He did not make a show. He was holy. He was compassionate. He was merciful. He did not compromise with sin. They, they could see him at all points, at all moments, that everything he taught was not just teaching. Regarding the Pharisees, Jesus would say, do what they teach you, but do not do as they do. Regarding himself, everything that he would teach, he lived it out completely. The way that the scriptures even unfold it for us, and as we see him living in absolute dependence on the Father, in John chapter 5, verse 19, it says this, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. And so you see, again, there's this, there's this glorious pattern of there. Jesus is saying, what do you see in him? What you see in him is he is doing what? The Father does, which is why, again, later, the, the, in the confusion with the disciples, they can say, show us the Father. And Jesus can respond to them, uh, he who has seen me has seen the Father. If you want to know what God is like, I just recently got back and, and uh, my friend uh, uh, Rick Anderson was teaching the doctrine of Christ to the students, and he, and he, he turned things around for them. If, if you want to know what God is like, God is Christ-like. Because Christ is the exact representation of the Father. The Father no one has seen at any time. But the Son has made Him known. And the Scriptures have made known the Son. That we can see from the Gospels what He did and what He taught. And in seeing those things, we see a faithful representation of God and godliness. Even sometimes when you begin to reconcile in our mind these kinds of things, we remember that even Paul comes along and says, follow me as I follow Christ. He said, we're, we're told in the book of Hebrews, take note of those leaders among you and their way of life and follow the example that you have in them. We've got this, we've, we've got in Christ perfect example. I mean, this, the, the, the beauty of this, so distinct from the world, even, even from the times that um, we would spend in India, it, it is so sad to see in their versions of incarnate gods, gods becoming man, those gods are, are not exemplary, perfect, blameless, righteous, fully obedient. Uh, but no, their gods are, are full of mischief and full of worldliness and full of wickedness. I mean, it, it, their gods are gods that men can really identify with. And maybe, I guess, in a sense, they can look at their gods and, and how they're full of mischief, stealing uh, uh, food from windows and uh, uh, falling off into uh, wine and women and such things like that. They can look at those and say, okay, I'm not so bad. But we, when we look at Christ, what do we see? absolute righteousness and in the face of that we see ourselves as far short and then in the grace of God revealed in the gospel we glory in the reality that we stand before God in the righteousness of Christ by faith and we're accepted by God in the beloved no basis in me our confidence is not in how much like Christ we are our confidence is in the perfections of Christ. And because of the grace that is ours in Him, because of the hope that is ours in Him, because Christ indeed in a real and experiential spiritual sense is living in us, Christ in us, the hope of glory, we will by grace through the Word and Spirit be conformed by degree to degree 
into the image of his son. Yes. I mean, he has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. He began it. It is working itself out in the grace of God. And he will bring it to perfect completion in the day of his return. What a, what a glorious thing to think of Christ's perfections. And not only with what all that Christ did, but even all that Christ would say. In John chapter 12, Jesus says this, For I have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a command what to say and what to speak. So the, the Gospels were revealing what Jesus did and spoke. The Scriptures also revealed to us whatever Jesus did was exactly what the Father would have him do. Whatever he spoke was exactly what the Father would have him speak. That's amazing. And what's, what's rich is Jesus did not go beyond those bounds. And really he, as he came as a sent one from the Father, he delivered that message with faithfulness. And he marked out for himself those men who would be apostles. And they would, in a very similar sense, speak not on their authority, but on the authority of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul would remind the people there that, look, if anyone there is a prophet or spiritual among you, he must recognize this, that what I speak to you is a command of the Lord. If he will not recognize this, then he is not to be recognized. And what we begin to see here uh, welling up in the book, book of Acts is, is, is an establishing of, of a great and primary role for the apostles in the service of Christ where they would really carry on that example. Now, did they do that perfectly? No. Christ alone did it perfectly. We know from the scriptures that there's a time that Cephas, who we better know as Peter, there's a time where his message was not matching his life. And so what happened to him? Paul comes to him and confronts him and says that his, his walk is out of step with the gospel. Was Paul perfect in all that he did? No, we see the harshness that he has towards John Mark and the, and, the, and the bitter argument that he has with sweet Barnabas and that separation of which later he has to recognize how useful Mark is for him in the ministries. Christ alone is perfect in all that he did and taught. Those who were his appointed apostles were not perfect in what they did, but by the grace of God, the Spirit led them into all truth that we can, with the authority of Christ behind them, receive all that they taught and rest on it with confidence and certainty. I just love that, that perfections of Christ. Further, this, this commitment of proclaim and principle ought to be ours as well. It was the commitment of Peter. It was the commitment of Paul, though they would do so imperfectly. It must be my commitment and it must be yours to bring uh, what we say and what we do all to be united. I love what it tells us, the scriptures tell us about Ezra. You remember Ezra, a scribe well-versed in the scripture. Uh, it tells us in Ezra chapter 7, and this would be my hope and prayer for everyone who is a minister in the kingdom of God, and further for every child of Christ that would, say, would see this. It says in Ezra chapter 7 verse 10 this, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it, and to teach his statutes. We can't have a leap there. Not simply study and teach. If, if you go from study to teach, what happens? That ends up being just a pursuit of knowledge, the kind of knowledge that puffs up. Study to teach. But when you, when you go from study to do, brothers and sisters, that knowledge does not puff up any longer. That knowledge humbles tremendously because we see our shortcomings, we see our inadequacy, we see our need and our dependence. And it, 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 we, we study, we do, and then we teach. And the hope would be that then as we teach, what we teach people would recognize, ah, oh, this person believes what they say. 
they mean it. That our life would be, as the scriptures say, an adornment for the message, an adornment for the gospel. Moving on from the, that first principle of practice and do, I want to move on to the next principle. And it's interesting when we, when we see, still in there, moving on to verse 2, what he began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through his Holy Spirit to the apostles. Now, this is, this is a part of the challenge. Jesus himself spent a significant amount of time. We know that between the time that he rose from the dead and the time that he was taken up, there were 40 days. And during those 40 days, he met with and continued to instruct those men who would be apostles. And it says that he gave to them commands. That's a strong word, isn't it? Who likes commands? Who likes when people tell you what to do? I would hope a lot of us are saying, well, if it's God, yes, I love for God to tell me what to do. Because if he tells me what to do, then I know what's pleasing to him, which is my heart's desire is to be pleasing to him. So yes, I want God to tell me what to do. Jesus sets forth commands. Now this, and this is going to always be, and, and this is going to be a, a mystery that will always be a challenge among the saints. In my experience uh, in, in ministry and across a bunch of different churches, what will tend to happen is this. If you're preaching the scriptures, there are certain times as you're preaching the grace of God revealed in the scriptures that you will sound a bit antinomian. Sound a bit like commands and, and responsibilities and rules don't matter because Christ has done it all. And so those who proclaim grace will be in danger of accusations of antinomianism. Now note this, there are those who are committedly antinomians, such is unhealthy. But those who, as they're preaching a particular passage that emphasizes the grace of God, the mercy and forgiveness that are, is ours in Christ, and that it is fully on the basis of Christ and all that he is, they will, to some ears, start to sound antinomian. But as they preach the whole counsel of the word of God, at some times in that same church, you'll be like, wait a second, this sounds a little bit legalistic. This church sounds like it's got too much of an emphasis on, on human responsibility and what God would have us do and what God has commanded us to do and our responsibilities. Yes. He, he, he makes it seem like uh, we have to do something. Yes. Indeed. And so the, the, in the faithful church that's preaching all of God's word, there are times that it may sound like you're on both sides of this issue. Now, if, you're, if you don't get both accusations, then you might want to figure out what you're doing. <laughs> because the scriptures herald very strongly the responsibility of man. Indeed, as, as, we, as we go through the scriptures here, uh, uh, Jesus says in John 15, 14, and this has always struck me as unique and distinct to Christ. He says in John 15, 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Now I say that is Jesus alone has the right and authority to say that. I, I discourage you from saying that to potential friends. But Jesus is, and this is what's remarkable about this is Jesus is speaking about a relational intimacy that is rich to the point of, of friendship, dearness, and love. But it does not remove his position of authority and lordship. And we must, we must not miss the reality that he is Lord and Master as well as brother and friend. These are glorious truths. And again, the same kind of thing. An imbalance and a missing on one side of the other does a disservice to God. And who is able to keep them in the perfect balance? 
I don't claim that ability myself. I say, let's stop striving somehow to achieve that perfect balance ourselves and just preach the whole counsel of God's word. If you preach the whole scriptures, you're going to preach the things that God reveals in the proportions that God reveals it. Be dependent on his word. And as you come to and you preach through a book like James, there's going to be a very strong emphasis on the responsibility and duty of men to live in a certain way. As you come over to uh, uh, sections such as Galatians, it's going to seem like, well, that sounds a lot less like you have to do and more like kind of the grace of God is going to well up within you and just bring it about. We declare all of it. And the Spirit, by His power, uh, applies these things to us. But we don't shy away from a bit of it. He says, so we, we see that Jesus communicated commands. Even as He communicated commands, He was one Himself who submitted to commands. It says in John 14, 31, But I do as the Father commanded me. So that the world may know that I love the Father. What demonstrated the love of Christ for the Father in the words of Christ? Not a gushing up and well, uh, a welling up of emotion. Not necessarily a, a bunch of flowy tears. Uh, not necessarily just telling people how much he loves. Jesus indicates that the, the, the tremendous demonstration of his genuine love for the Father is in a wholesale submission to his will and commands. Which, interestingly enough, doesn't sound too different from what the Word of God tells us. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 2 and 3, it says this, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we obey His commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. This is the love of God. You know, which is a shocking thing when we hear that there are, there are those who would be out there trying to argue a form of faith that requires not repentance and deeds consistent with repentance. A form of supposed Christianity that does not have following some pronounced faith and allegiance to and submission to Christ. That does not make sense. He is Lord and Savior. He is those things. And that some might think that we as His people can divide those things. I take Him as my Savior... But uh, I will remain Lord. Does that make sense? It's not a matter of you take him anyways. The question is, has he taken hold of you? Because if he has taken hold of you, the grace of God that is poured into your hearts brings you to acknowledge him and submit to him as Lord and Master with much joy. And the denial of self and the denial of the world isn't something that we continue to, oh, I'm really missing out. It's not burdensome. It's not, oh, I don't want to miss out. No, it's I want to please God. And to do this is displeasing to Him. I'll have no part of it. And we don't stand over here and say, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm losing out, I'm missing out. It's just so hard to be a Christian. No, we say, it is so glorious. It's so glorious to be here because I know that as I abstain from that, he's pleased. He delights in this. How, how astounding that I with all of my past failings and all of my present limitations, that I might in some small ways bring pleasure to my God. That's a thought that's always shocked me. But we see this 
strong statement of Jesus communicating commands. Even if you look in God's word, we're all familiar with the, uh, the great commission. Right? That, that's, that wonderful statement there. But, but somehow I think that, that in the modern church, when we process the great commission, we somehow stopped reading what it says. Because we remember in Matthew 28, 16 and following, that um, 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. They saw him and worshipped him there, but some doubted. Jesus said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And it's always important for us to slow down a second and kind of get beyond our, our, our modern sense of, of disciple. What was a disciple in those days? It was a follower, a pupil, a learner. It doesn't say make Christians. Make, make a group of people who profess Christ. It says make disciples. You know, Christian was a name that was first put on the disciples in Antioch because their discipleship was so Christ-oriented. Their conversation was so Christ-filled that the people called them Christians. That's a good thing. Now, sadly, I think when we put that title on someone or they put that title on themselves, it has very little to do with, with, with the central core of their life and being. He says, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Verse 20 then says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the earth. So is the Great Commission finished in gospel presentations? Not at all. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. They're, the scriptures are all given to us because as it tells us in Timothy, all scripture is profitable. For instruction, correction, training in righteousness. There are times that we need rebukes. There are times that we need to, to, to feel the weight of, of our sin and disservice to God. There's times that we need encouragement and counsel. There's times we need correction and clarification to our understanding. And the scriptures fulfill all of that, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. The, the life of a discipleship is a life of learning and, and that learning converts itself into how a person lives. It's their learning and it is their life. Teaching them to observe. The idea of observe is not just, hmm, I see. No, we can observe. That's, that's, that's a phrase we might use with our eyes. We observe something. The scriptures, when it's using this term here, it, is, it could be synonymously communicated by saying teaching them to obey really teaching them to keep to keep watch over even as as the scriptures remind uh, 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 Paul reminds uh, uh, Titus to to keep a watch over himself and his doctrine so that all may see your progress this commitment to live out the, the, the principles. Um, the fourth principle, just by way of sort of introduction within this, would be also from uh, verse 2. Until the day was taken up, he gave commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now, we're going to unfold that as we get further. The fact that he gave the commands through the Holy Spirit. Remember how often when you go through the Gospels, Jesus would speak to them and it says, but what he said was, hidden from their eyes. Jesus said this to them, but he didn't, they did not understand what he meant. After his resurrection, he comes to them and he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. He, as it says, opened their mind to understand the things of the gospel. Now, they would later, on the day of Pentecost, receive permanently the indwelling and gift of the Holy Spirit. There, but in, in between, there was special enablement so that they might understand the things that he's given him. Don't forget what it says in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The natural man 
Does he understand spiritual things? He cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God because they are spiritually discerned. But we understand because he has given us his Spirit. And so as, as Jesus was making all these extraordinary instructions and trainings and corrections, giving them all of these glorious connections so that they might understand how in Moses and throughout all of the prophets, they speak concerning him. So many pieces to put together. So much mystery that was kept hidden for ages and generations and that has now been revealed. And they were receiving this. I mean, this would have been an extraordinary season to sit under the teaching of Christ and the necessity of the Holy Spirit in order to grasp these things. But I want to go on further. And within the context of this, we see a third principle. Uh, he presented through many proofs during, uh, to the apostles. Okay, He had given commands, verse 2, through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So again, you, you caught up within this is the idea, can or could anybody just be an apostle? Is it like taking the bar exam? And if you pass the exam, you get it. No, it's not like medical licenses. It's not like it, it's there. There's no way that an individual themselves could achieve or attain apostolic status. The only way that anyone would become an apostle is by the appointment of Christ himself. He chose. Now, some may look at that and say, well, that's not fair. I mean, we, we know that uh, e even shortly here in the book of Acts, it's going to tell us that there were 120 people who were, who were worshiping and, and who were with him. It just doesn't seem fair to me that he would only give here 11, and then later in this chapter, Matthias will be added 12. I mean, here's, there's 120 that seem to be faithful believers before Pentecost. And Jesus only chose 12 of them to be his apostles? How unreasonable. How inappropriate. How unfair. No, 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 no. Even if our hearts say that, what we should be recognizing is this. The men that he chose, were they of themselves worthy? Peter recognized his unworthiness to which there seemed to have to be a, a recalling and appointing of him in triplicate. Do you love me more than these? Feed my sheep. What had he gone back to doing? He had gone back to fishing and not feeding the sheep. But he was elect of God unto another particular purpose. Even Paul, who would be one untimely born, consider himself the least of all, even unworthy to be an apostle. But you know the reality? Every single one of those 12 was unworthy to be an apostle. They were made apostles by God's electing purposes, God's selecting, choosing purposes of those men. Not distinct from, as we will continue through this book, and we see in Acts chapter 13 how the gospel is declared, and as many as were ordained to salvation believed. We see that the electing purposes of God, that he has all authority and all rights. Again, even as I say that, what did, it say, what did Jesus say as he told the, the Great Commission to his disciples? All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. And I tell you, since that time, mankind has been trying to somehow deny that all authority belongs to Christ breaks my heart that even within the context of Christianity and the church, there is an attempt to demand that all authority belongs to Christ. Salvation belongs to our God. 
It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. By his own will, through his word, he has caused us to be born again to a new and living hope. Do we not understand that in everything, not only with regard to the practical appointment of ministries and service and gifts that we will have, but even our designation to be drawn out of the world and to be made one with God's people in Christ, that is all God's grace. That is all his goodness. And see, these, these apostles could not boast of their superiority and worthiness in any way. The saints of God, we do not boast of our superiority or worthiness in any way. We fall to our knees and we come even now. Whatever growth we achieve, whatever service we render, we recognize this. I am what I am, nevertheless not I, but the grace of God at work in me. And so we are constantly in that recognition. And we say these statements, and I wish we would say them with real ownership. The sad thing is once something becomes commonplace and trite, then it just, the mouth just moves and the brain's turned off. But by the grace of God, there go I. You know, when, when someone we care for, a brother and sister in Christ, uh, stumbles and struggles, if our first thoughts are, the grace of God has kept me from that by the word working in his, by his spirit, by the grace, if it were not for the grace of God, I also may stumble. If it were not for the grace of God, I also will fall. That will restrain us from the tendency to merely jump to judgment. When we start by first examining ourselves and examining and removing the logs from our own eye, but we don't ignore the speck in our brother's eye. Right? First examine, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. We do, we, we do not pass judgment in terms of final judgment, but we do hold one another accountable. We call sin a sin and we deal with it. Because remember, the, 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 the scripture even urges, as God's chosen ones put on therefore. The glory of the grace of God being poured out upon us is, is to be for us a great movement and motivation from within by the working of the Spirit to put off sin and to live in a way that's honoring to Christ. Following on these principles, we lastly look at the concept of proofs. It says, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering, verse 3, by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking with them about the kingdom of God. What an amazing seminar course on the kingdom of God these men must have received. Oh, to have sat under that. Uh, but uh, many proofs. I mean, let me just list for you some of the proofs by which he presented that they were aware of uh, as they came. The ladies came, and then as the disciples came later, the stone was rolled away. The angels present announced that he is no longer in the tomb. Why do you look for the living among the dead? For he is risen, just as he said. He meets with some of them on the road to Emmaus and walks with them and talks with them and speaks with them. And in the breaking of bread, he makes himself known to them and then he's gone. Then the, as they go rushing back and they're telling the disciples and the disciples are in an upper room, a locked room, Jesus appears in the midst of them. But not only appears, but he will later appear to them a week later and say, look, touch my hands. Touch my side. Jesus appeared by proofs. Not just uh, 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 some vision in the mist. Not just someone claiming to have a dream. They could touch him. They could see him. They could hear him. He sat with them. He ate with them. He cooked for them. For 40 days. And then he was taken up 
out of their sight. And it wasn't a small thing. It's over and over again, as the scriptures say in 1 Corinthians 15, I delivered unto you as of first importance what I also received from Christ, that he died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He appeared to Cephas. He appeared to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than, five, more to more than 500 brothers at once. What a mercy and grace of God that he would protect those 12 from the, from the claim or accusation of fabrication by appearing to 500 at once. So it wasn't just these men saying, yeah, we were locked in the room and he appeared. Yeah, sure. He appeared to more than 500 at one time corroborating the special meetings that he had with his apostles so that all would know. And then he goes on to say, and he appeared to James. And last of all, he appeared to me as one untimely born. Jesus evidenced it with tremendous physical proofs, tremendous spiritual proofs. And then we look at the lives of the apostles, their life and their ministry, and we see even further proofs. And as we take up this book of Acts, it is in a large extent designed to declare this unique Christ and how the truth of Christ and the truth of the gospel, the truth of his work, the truth of his doctrine, as it, as it breaks forth on the day of Pentecost, it begins to turn Jerusalem upside down. And it begins a work of the gospel that then is met with persecution and God begins to spread that message from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and build his church to the ends of the earth. And Christ is still building his church. And we, by his grace, get to be those instruments in his hands that he might build it. So we go forth with that gospel. We go forth with that gospel gospel in East Texas. We go forth with, forth with that gospel um, over to India, over to Mauritius. We go forth with that gospel uh, to France, wherever God opens doors. And what's beautiful is, you know what does not change in any context? The gospel. The gospel that saved on the day of Pentecost is the gospel that saves today. It is a declaration of Christ, all that he did and all that he taught and that we listen and learn from him. So simple things. We saw the prologue in the introduction of this book. We saw these principles and those three principles were primarily this, uh, to do and to teach, communicated commands, and then God set forth elect envoys, elect emissaries, those unique apostles who would have a special service, and then he presented himself through many proofs. Let's pray.